I'd like to invite your attention to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Genesis, chapter 15. One thing that we have learned in recent weeks as we've studied the life of Abram is that the very best of men, even Christian men, faithful men, are men at best. We have here in the life of Abram a man of great faith. In fact, Paul calls him in Romans 4, the father of our faith. And yet we have seen at various times that he is disobedient and doubtful. Though Hebrews refers to him as a hero of the faith, we understand that he is merely a man who is redeemed by grace, that has that he exercises this faith only by God's grace. And so now as we look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, Abram, the man of faith, begins to doubt the word of God. But God comes to him and strengthens his faith by answering his doubts and his fears with reminders of his promises and of his goodness. If you found your way to Genesis chapter 15, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, I remember very well the words of one of my high school basketball coaches frequently after we would run sprints at the end of practices through our Puffs and puffs and deep breathing, he would yell to us, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Well, I learned later on that those words actually originated from the World War II general, General uh, George S. Patton, which makes sense given my history teacher, my coach was also a history teacher. But nonetheless, General Patton writes a letter to his soldiers that drew a correlation between their level of fitness and their courage and valor in battle. And what George Patton recognized is that it's true that exhaustion and weariness and fatigue has a way of revealing fear, discouragement, and weakness. That's certainly true physically on the battlefield or on the basketball court, but it's also true spiritually. Last Wednesday night, we began a new study on Wednesday nights, and one of the characters that we studied was Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 and in chapter 19. And we read there of Ahab summoning all the people of Israel, and Elijah approaches them and speaks to them and asks them, how long are you going to waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And so Elijah boldly stands there alone against these 450 prophets of Baal and he calls down fire from heaven as the Lord consumes upon the altar that he had built this sacrifice to the Lord. And God works through Elijah in a powerful way as he 
burns up this offering, showing himself to be God above Baal. In fact, it's even said there, after he defeats the prophets of Baal, he goes up to the summit of Mount Carmel to pray, and it says there in 1 Kings 18 that the power of the Lord was on Elijah. He had won a great victory over the prophets of Baal, but then Jezebel becomes angry with Elijah, and, uh, is threatened, and she threatens to kill him. And so Elijah, this man upon whom the power of the Lord rests, responds not in great faith and not in power, but in fear. He flees all the way to the other side of the country to Mount Horeb. And we read there that Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. He sat down under a broom tree and even prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my ancestors. He's downcast and weary. He prays to die because he felt like he's the only one left. We see that the fatigue from this great spiritual victory has left Elijah a coward. Fatigue has made him fearful. But the Lord answers Elijah and he calls him up onto Mount Horeb and he says to Elijah, Uh, that he's going to speak to him there. And at first there comes a great wind, but the Lord is not in the wind. There's a great earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then there's a great fire, but God is not in the fire either. And he speaks to him in a still, small voice, whispering to him, building him up and granting him encouragement. There's a voice, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah to encourage him in his weak faith. We see in our text in Genesis chapter 15, a very similar thing is happening in the life of Abram. We read last week of the events of chapter 14, and we read in 15, it says, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So there's a clear connection to what we studied last week in chapter 14 and the events of chapter 15 as the Lord appears to Abram in a vision to encourage and strengthen his faith. Abram has gone to battle to rescue his nephew Lot and all the possessions that he had and all the people that were taken with him. And against all odds, he defeats Ketelamar, this king from the east who had come to bring to subjection the kings of the Jordan Valley that had rebelled against him. Abram wasn't supposed to win this, but he goes in the strength of God, and God grants him a miraculous victory. The text that we saw last week, Abram interacts with the king of Sodom and of king of Melchizedek of Salem, and he withstands this tremendous temptation toward the things of the world, rejecting the offer of the king of Sodom and praising God and rejoicing with king Melchizedek. Abram wins a mighty victory. His faith stands the test and he glorifies God. But now as we turn the page to Genesis chapter 15, we find Abram, again, like Elijah, not on the top of the mountain, but at the bottom of the valley, fearful and concerned that the Lord's promises will fail. But again, here in Genesis 15, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision to strengthen his weak faith. Well, just like Elijah and just like Abram, our faith is sometimes weak, isn't it? Sometimes we doubt the Lord's goodness, we doubt the Lord's promises, we doubt the Lord's grace in, in our lives. We're often fearful, giving ourselves to worry and anxiety about the cares of life or the promises of God. But just as the word of the Lord comes to Abram, by his word, the Lord strengthens our faith through doubt, fears, and weaknesses. We read all throughout the scriptures about the 
powerful word of God. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 that it is indeed a powerful word. It is the word that cuts to the heart. It's living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It's by the word of the Lord that he peers into our souls and sees the fears that dwell within. The Word of God doesn't merely address the surface issues of our lives, but it addresses the very fears of our hearts and of our souls. It's a powerful word. Isaiah 55 tells us that His Word that comes from His mouth will not return to Him empty, but it will accomplish what He pleases and what He prospers and what He sends it to do. We also read further in 2 Timothy that it's a profitable word, that it is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching and for rebuking and for correcting and for training in righteousness. And so we learn now in Genesis 15 that this powerful, profitable, and piercing word the Lord speaks to our hearts when we're fatigued and fearful and faithless. So if you're following along this morning and taking notes, we want to consider in two ways this morning that the word of the Lord comes to Abram to strengthen his faith. We want to consider first that the Lord answers our fears with his promises. We read again in verse 1 that after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And so Abram is fearful and discouraged. Again, his fear and his discouragement is connected back to the events of chapter 14. I think one of the reasons that he's fearful is because of the exhaustion from the battle. He certainly fought boldly to rescue Lot and all the people. He stood boldly in the faith for the Lord against the temptation from the king of Sodom. But now the fatigue from his spiritual faithfulness has made him a spiritual coward. He's exhausted in the faith, so to speak. But I think there's also a level of vulnerability to Abram. He recognizes as he reflects back on it that he picked a battle with a really powerful king. He's fought King Ketelamar and chased him and his alliance out of the promised land. And now I think Abram is in part worried that there may be retribution from the king of King Ketelamar and his alliance. After all, King Ketelamar come to the promised land, to retaliate against the kings who had rebelled against him and stopped paying tribute. And so surely Abram is fearful that King Ketelamar may retaliate to avenge his honor. But the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. And he answers those fears with new promises and reminders of old promises. Now, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. We want to understand that that's likely not to be the case for you and I, given the completed canon of the Word of God. He has spoken in these last days fully and completely in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we have the completed revelation of God to us. But here in these ancient times, the Lord has spoken His Word to Abram in a vision. And He tells him, do not be afraid. Fear not, Abram. And this is the first time in the scriptures that this oft-repeated maxim will come to the people of God. Fear not. Do not be afraid. 
It's interesting to me that the first time that this word that will show up many times again throughout the scriptures to God's people comes first to Abram, our father in the faith, the one who first believed in the Lord in the way and and set the standard and measure of faith that we read about through the New Testament. It is to Abram, the father of all who believe that this command, do not be afraid, first comes. And we certainly want to recognize it as a command. He commands Abram, do not be afraid, do not fear. But God doesn't just bring Abram an imperative, a command. His command is rooted in his gracious promises. God's word certainly brings commands, but God's word also brings resources upon which to act in obedience to those commands. Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your great reward. You see, God gives him some truth to defend this command upon which Abram is to obey. Do not be afraid, Abram, in essence, because I am your shield. I'm going to defend you and I'm going to protect you. Now, we want to notice that there's no word from the Lord about the legitimacy of Abram's concern. Perhaps this was a very real threat that Ketelamar would come back and pick a fight. There's no promise from God that Ketelamar isn't going to retaliate. But the Lord tells Abram, do not be afraid, Abram, because I am your shield. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be your defender. But he also tells him that his reward will be very great. Let's remember again that Abram has refused the offer of the king of Sodom in the previous chapter. He has all the spoils of war. He has five kingdoms worth, five cities worth of riches at his disposal. And he gives them all, save 10%, back to the king of Sodom because he trusts in the Lord to provide his riches and to provide his blessings to him without forming an alliance with the king of Sodom. And so he refuses the reward from the king of Sodom. But God here reminds Abram not to second-guess that decision. Surely Abram would have rationalized in his mind at this point as he reflects later on this battle. Maybe I should have kept all of that. I could have hired an army to defend me against Ketelamar. Maybe I made a mistake in declining this offer from the king of Sodom. But the Lord speaks to him and reminds him, Abram, apart from that, your reward will be great. I want to recognize in the original languages there are two possible ways to take this phrase, your reward will be very great. One way of taking this is that, he's, that God is speaking of the blessings of life that he has already promised to Abram. You can think back to Genesis chapter 12 and the original covenant promises that were made to Abram. He tells them, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. One way we can take this is that the reward that's being spoken of here is the reward to be made a great nation, to be blessed by God and to have his offspring be as numerous as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the sky. But one way that we could possibly translate this from the original language is as the King James Version translates it. The King James says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And so here what what the authors of the King James Version are getting at is that it's not merely a great reward in the present and temporal sense, but that the Lord himself would be the reward that is promised. And I think the Hebrew is ambiguous here, and so there's 
a diversity of opinions about how to take it, but perhaps it is deliberately ambiguous. Much like the genealogy of Melchizedek that is missing in the book of Genesis and the author of Hebrews takes the absence of that genealogy and his origins to draw connections to the eternality of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here the ambiguity of the Hebrew might mean that there is a pointing of reward to a temporal blessing and reward that Abram is going to receive and see fulfilled in his present life but that there is also a greater reality that God himself is the ultimate fulfillment of that reward. This is, I think, what the author of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 11 when he speaks of Abram as a pilgrim in a foreign land who is seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. He recognizes that the true fulfillment of all of his promises are not going to be realized in this present life, but in the life to come with God. And so his ultimate reward is this relationship with God himself. His true reward, his great reward will be the Lord himself. All the other blessings and all the other rewards that God has promised to him point him to the great reward of God himself. God speaks to Abram here and says, not only am I going to protect you, but I'm also going to bless you. And Abram, not only that, I'm going to give myself to you. You will be with me and I with you. I will be your exceedingly great reward. And here God recenters and refocuses Abram's faith upon himself. One might ask Abram, was it worth it to leave Ur and all your family and all of your possessions and everything behind and go to a land where you did not know that you were going? Abram, was it worth it to pick a fight with King Ketelamar, risking everything that you had gained when you came out of Egypt? Abram, was it worth it to pass on the blessings or the monetary gain from the king of Sodom, the offer from the king of Sodom? And Abram is reminded here that yes, indeed, it was worth it in all of these ways because the Lord is his great reward. The greatest and best of all is mine in faith. I'm going to receive God himself. And so, dear Christian, as we think about this passage and how it might apply to us, we are reminded that God indeed answers our fears. Just as he spoke to Abram in his fear and in his doubt and in his concerns, the Lord answers our fears as well. There are times in our lives where there is legitimate threat of danger. There's legitimate fear that something might happen to us or to others. And we want to recognize that God has not promised that nothing bad will happen to us. Abram here is being specifically and specially protected by God in his redemptive purposes in the world. But when we experience legitimate threats of danger, these remind us that our lives belong to God. When there is legitimate threat of danger, when there is something to be afraid of in a, a physical sense in our lives, we want to be reminded that our lives belong to God. This is why Jesus is able to say, don't fear those who kill the body, but fear him who is able to cast both soul and body into hell. We fear God because our lives belong to God and we trust him with our lives and with our circumstances when there are legitimate threats to it. But we also want to recognize, brothers and sisters, that we also tend often toward sinful fears, towards worries and towards anxieties. 
that are fundamentally fear in nature and an absence of trust in God. We have anxieties and worries that reveal a fear of some desire in our soul being taken away from us that has taken the place of God. And we need that or want that, desire that more than we want God Himself. The psalmist addresses this in Psalm 27 when he reminds us that though we have enemies all about us, we need not be afraid. Why? Because there's one thing that David desires. One thing he has asked of God, and it is the Lord Himself. It is to gaze upon His beauty and to dwell in His presence in the temple. When we experience these sinful worries and anxieties and fears, we must be re-centered and refocused, brothers and sisters, reminded that all the fear of man and all the fear of circumstances and even the fear of our own sinful capabilities in our soul are dwarfed by the greatness of God and our desire for Him. Let us look to God and be reminded that He is our shield. He is our reward. The Lord answers by His word just as He answered Abram. He comes to us and He says, Fear not. I am your shield and I am your reward. You see, He doesn't leave Abram in... Rather, He doesn't change those fears or change those circumstances of fears for Abram. God simply speaks to Abram about himself. The Lord speaks to Abram, getting right to the heart of the matter, and tells him something that won't only help him in this present circumstance, but will help him in every circumstance in his life to come. He reminds him of truth about himself. So that when Abram experiences fear and doubt in the future, he's reminded of that central truth about God, that he is his shield, And that He is His exceeding great reward. And so Christian, we want to recognize that you will sometimes struggle with fear. This is Abram, our father in the faith that we're speaking about. We've also spoken about Elijah, but time does not permit us to speak about Joshua or Jehoshaphat or Jeremiah or even the Apostle Paul, all who faced various moments of fear in their life. And to each of them, God came in the same way that He came to Abram and said, Do not be afraid. I'm reminded particularly of the Apostle Paul when fearful of doing ministry in the city of Corinth as he worries and fears and frets about this ministry. The Lord comes to him in a night vision, Acts 18 says. And the Lord says, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. And so, dear Christian, we are reminded this morning when fears come upon us, whether legitimate threats or sinful worries and anxieties, that God is our shield and His Word comes to us speaking to us, do not be afraid for He is with us. He is our shield from our enemies. He is a shield from that great tempter, Satan. We might think of Job. We've studied recently in Job on Wednesday nights and we're reminded that there was a hedge of protection around Job as he stood there before the Lord. Satan comes to the Lord and and asks and the Lord offers Job to him to, to tempt him and the Lord lowers that hedge of protection. But we're reminded that even in that the Lord protects those who are his and keeps them for himself. 
The Lord is our shield against temptation. When we face the battle of temptation towards sin, the Lord is our shield and our protector and our defender to keep us for Himself. But dear Christian, in an ultimate sense, the Lord is our shield against that great enemy that we all face, death. We're reminded that God has promised to protect and to safeguard our eternal souls. The Apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The Lord, our defender and our shield, is guarding us and protecting us and keeping us from eternal condemnation in Christ Jesus and eternal death. We're being guarded and protected for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. And so when we face death, that last great enemy of mankind, we can know for certain that in Christ Jesus it has been placed under His feet. It is, it is in subjection to Him and He keeps us through it. But dear Christian, let us be reminded most of all that it is God Himself who is our great reward. As I studied this passage this week, I was reminded of a, a phrase in theology that is called the beatific vision. That's just a Latin phrase that means the vision or the sight that makes us happy. And for a Christian, the beatific vision, the, the beauty, the joy, the gladness of heart that will come by sight is the face of Jesus Christ and the glory of God that shines from it. We're reminded in the book of Revelation that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Like Abram, there may be blessings of God in this life and He may bestow great riches and great blessings and, and spiritual graces upon us. But dear Christian, the beatific vision, the thing that brings most joy to our souls is the thought of seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we see Him, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Oh, dear Christian, it is God Himself who is our great reward. He is best and greatest of all. What more could we want than to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ for all eternity? This, dear Christian, is your great reward. We often get caught up in the trivial and immediate cares of life. But these verses remind us that we need to be refocused on God Himself. Well, this is the first of the fears of Abram, but he continues in verses 2 and 3 to say this, Lord, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. See, Abram is not only afraid because of his exhaustion and because of his vulnerability to Ketelamar, but he's afraid because he's beginning to doubt the promises of God. You see, years have gone by. We read the book of Genesis and we think this all happens in a matter of days, but likely a decade or more has gone by since Genesis chapter 12 and the original promises of God. And even Genesis 13 when God reaffirms those promises. And so year after year has gone by and Abram grows older and older and the promises of God seem to get ever increasingly out of reach for Abram as his wife is barren and he gets older in age. We read about that in Romans 4. 
But we want to look at these passages and hear about Abram's complaint, but we also want to recognize God's answer to Abram. Abram comes to the Lord. He offers his complaint in this reverent way. He calls him Lord God or Sovereign God. He recognizes that the only place to take his burdens is to the God of creation, the one who has made him and heaven and earth and who is the one who promised him all of these blessings to begin with. And so he comes to the Lord and offers his complaint and offers his concerns and offers his doubt. He says, Eleazar, my steward, is going to be my heir. Abram wants a proper heir, a child born to him by his wife, Sarai. After all, God has promised him the land and has promised uh, this land to his offspring. And he's reiterated that promise multiple times throughout the scriptures. And so the Lord now comes to Abram and to answer him after Abram raises this complaint, Lord, for all of this, I still don't have an heir. The Lord answers his great fear in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And so the Lord begins by first repeating the promise to Abram, the one that he's made him again and again. I'm going to give you the land, but I'm also going to give you an offspring that will fill the land. There's this repetition of the promise though it's happened in chapter 12 and in 13 and in 14 again in chapter 15 the Lord reiterates Abram I'm going to fulfill my word to you you might think of a mother correcting their children why is it that she has to say it a hundred times instead of 99 times because the child didn't hear it on the 99th time and needs to hear it again and again and again I've experienced that recently So the Lord comes to Abram again and again, speaking to him, reminding him of his faithfulness and of his goodness in his promises. But this time the Lord gives him clarification about this promise by way of illustration. He takes him outside and this vision clearly must have happened during the night. Perhaps it was a dream of some sort, but he takes him outside at night and he says, Abram, look about the stars and if you're able to number the stars then this will be the number of your offspring. Well, certainly we recognize that Abram was unable to number the stars. Some 4,000 years later, we're still unable to number the stars. With increasing advance in science, we just know that there are more and more and more as we reach further out into God's universe. And so the point is that your offspring is going to be innumerable. There's going to be a multitude, Abram, by faith that are going to fill this land. But there's also going to be an innumerable spiritual multitude that fills the throne room of God. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. But I think more than that, it's not just the number of the offspring. But it's the sheer glory of the sight of what Abram would have beheld as he looked up at the unpolluted night sky to see the vast wonder of God's creation and saw all of these innumerable stars and beheld the glory of the work of God because God was going to do an incredible work through Abram who is at this time very old and his wife is barren. Abram, you're not just going to have one offspring but you're going to have an innumerable offspring. And I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to reward you. And I'm going to glorify my name 
through you as you behold the brilliance of these stars so my glory is going to shine through your innumerable offspring and then he confirms this covenant after giving him this illustration he confirms the by covenant now we're going to talk about that next week as we look at verses 7 down through verse 21 but God confirms by covenant the promises that he's given to Abram here And so he repeats them, he illustrates them, and he confirms his promises to Abram. Well, dear church, likewise, there are lessons for us to learn from Abram's faith, and I think the first of which is a call for us to cast our fears and doubts before God. Oftentimes we doubt the Lord and we doubt His promises and we doubt His goodness. And like Abram, we're called to open all of our concerns before God. Sometimes I think we're scared to do that, fearful to do that, as if God does not know all of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts already. The Word of God divides asunder and cuts to the very intentions and thoughts of our hearts. He knows all of these things anyways. And He invites us to cast our burdens upon Him, cast our doubts and fears before Him, knowing that He knows our innermost thoughts already. And in that we find grace. And relief from our fears and doubts as the Word of God speaks into our lives, reminding us of God's character and of His goodness. But this passage also serves as a reminder to us that we are numbered among the offspring of Abram in Christ, His true Son. Paul picks up on these verses in Galatians 3 and says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed, heirs according to the promise. And so, dear Christian, when we stand looking up at the same night sky that Abram looked at millennia ago, we are reminded that among those stars, we are numbered with the seed of Abram. As he looked up and beheld this innumerable offspring, this innumerable host of stars that represented his offspring by faith, we are counted among them in Christ Jesus. And so as we look up and behold the glory of God, we see not only his excellence in creation, but we see His excellence in redeeming grace and regenerating us and changing us and making us children of Abram by faith. How wonderful it is that God accomplishes His promises to Abram by accomplishing His promises in us, giving us redeeming life and saving grace that we would be counted among the offspring of Abram. And so dear Christian, God's faithfulness to Abram reminds us of God's faithfulness to us. If God is faithful to Abram in giving him a seed and an offering, we see the fullness of God's promises come to fulfillment throughout the Scriptures. If God is faithful to Abram, He is also going to be faithful to us. He will keep us and protect us and guard us. And God's promise of salvation in Christ will not fail. And He has given us, like He gave Abram, signs of this promise. He told Abram to look up at the stars and let them serve as a reminder that I'm going to bless you and all of the promises of God are going to be fulfilled in you and through you, Abram. In a way, those stars served as a a sacrament, as a sign of God's covenant promises to Abram. And in the same way, God has given us sacraments or signs of the promises of God in Christ to us. He has given us the signs of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. And as we observe these physical, tangible realities, we are reminded that these speak more than just this bread and this cup that are before us. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, we are reminded of God's grace 
grace to us in Christ and that his promises will not fail. May this strengthen our faith as God strengthened Abram's faith. Well, we've seen first, dear church, that the Lord strengthens our faith just as he strengthened the faith of Abram when he was fatigued and fearful and faithless. He does so by addressing Abram's fears with his promises. But I want us to see secondly this morning that he also strengthens our faith by reminding us of a powerful doctrinal truth. And so I want us to see second that the Lord answers our belief with imputed righteousness. He answers our belief with imputed righteousness. This final verse, verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is not necessarily a word of the Lord to Abram, but it's a comment by Moses as he's writing the book of Genesis to help us to understand what is happening in the heart of Abram as he stands looking up to the stars. The the narrative itself leaves us with Abram looking at the stars, beholding the glory of God and his promises to him. And we're left wondering, what is Abram thinking? What is Abram believing as he's looking up at these stars? Well, Moses tells us that he believed God and God counted this to him as righteousness. But not only does this verse help us to see into the heart of Abram, But it also helps us to see how God addresses the faith and belief within the heart of Abram. How does God address? How does he speak to? What does God do with the faith that resides in the heart of Abram? And Moses speaks to this, explaining that God counts it, credits it, imputes righteousness to him because of the faith that is in his soul. But this verse is not only significant for Abram, it's significant for us, because it dem- which is demonstrated by its frequent use in the New Testament. The New Testament authors, Paul in particular, pick up on this verse that it was credited to him as righteousness and explain to us the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to see Abram's conversion experience here. He, after all, has left Ur, left everything behind. He's living by faith. But we see here that Abram is remaining firm in those promises. He's continuing by faith. He's continuing to believe God. This is representative of his life of faith, him believing God here in Genesis 15. And so Abram's righteousness, as we have seen in Noah and in Seth and in Abel before them, Abram's righteousness is not dependent upon Abram's obedience or upon Abram's works. But the author of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, tells us that the works uh, that we are not saved by the works of our own doing. He goes on to say in Galatians 3, That it's by believing what you heard, just like Abram who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abram's sons. And so Abram's faith in Genesis 15 points us to our own faith and the reality that it is through faith that God credits righteousness to, uh, to those who believe. Faith 
relies upon the promises of God. Faith relies upon the promised Redeemer. And that's exactly what Abram is doing here. He recognizes as God points him to the stars that there is not merely this innumerable offspring that is going to inhabit this physical land on earth, but that there is one offspring that was first promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. There is a seed of the woman. There is one who will come, who will bring relief, who will redeem the fallen race of Adam. And Abram is looking by faith, not merely to a son who would come by Sarai, and not merely to an innumerable offspring, but he is looking by faith to Christ who would come from his lineage. He is looking by faith to Jesus. Jesus helps us to see this in John chapter 8. He says there, your father Abram rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so Abram is looking by faith. He sees the day of Christ afar off and he rejoices in it. Not only that God is going to bless him in the here and now with offspring that are going to fill the land of Israel and fulfill God's promises, but there is one offspring that is foreshadowed here who will be a Messiah to all who will believe. And by faith, it is credited to him as righteousness. It is not a by works that we justify ourselves. It's not by, by works that we earn our salvation or our right standing before God. This is the great need of all mankind to be declared righteous, to be justified before a holy God. And Moses makes it clear by example of Abram that righteousness cannot and does not come by works. It comes only by believing the promises of God. And that faith itself is not a work before God. It's not about the strength of the faith or the righteousness of the faith or the goodness of the person who is believing. No, our, even our faith itself does not save us. It is about believing the promises of God and God Himself justifying us though we are unworthy. Faith is not meritorious in that way. No, faith alone justifies apart from works. We read in our scripture reading in Romans chapter 4 that the faith of Abram is a model of faith for all of us, that saving faith is apart from works. If it were by works, it would be due to us. It would be owed to us. But faith is simply the receiving of a gift. And so sinners, beginning with Abram on down through redemptive history, are justified through faith in Christ alone. And that comes only by imputation, by gift, by granting it to us, by crediting to us that which we do not deserve. It is reckoned to us. God justifies sinners by faith, by imputing the works of His Son to them. We've quoted many times as we've studied Abram from 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The great need of Abram is our great need to be declared righteous by God, but that comes only by the double imputation that happened on the cross. Our sins transferred to the Lord Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness transferred to me. Not by works and not by deserving, but by faith that God will do this for me. And so, dear church, I want to remind you this morning that if you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous by faith before God. 
And you will never, for now and all eternity, in the sight of God, be more righteous than you are right now. You may grow in holiness. God is certainly working to sanctify us, and we will be more holy and more like Christ. But by faith, the righteousness of God is imputed to you at the cross of Calvary, and He sees you as He sees His righteous Son. Believe the Lord, and it will be counted to you as righteousness. We are justified by faith in this way. That's why we read in Romans chapter 4 about the faith of Abram. It says in verse 22, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abram alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justifications. These words, Paul says, were not spoken for Abram alone, but for all of us who believe upon the Lord Jesus and receive salvation through faith. We will be justified before God, delivered from our transgressions and justified before God by faith in Christ Jesus. How then could we doubt so sure a salvation? Dear Christian, your salvation, your eternal standing is not dependent upon the sincerity of your faith, but that by faith you are declared righteous before God Almighty through the works of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Not by your own works and not by the sincerity of your faith, not by your goodness, not by anything that you can do, but by believing God. And it shall be credited to you as righteousness. What assurance we have when we doubt the goodness of God and the promises of God. When we even doubt our own selves, what assurance it is that our righteousness is secure before God. Oh church, may we stand firm upon this doctrine of justification by faith alone. There has been spiritual warfare down through the ages guarding and defending this essential doctrine of the faith. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. This is the heart of Christianity that we are justified by faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is what the Christian religion is all about. This is the center of who we are. That faith in Jesus Christ makes us righteous before God. Let us stand firm upon this doctrine. And let this doctrine strengthen our faith. When we doubt the goodness of God, when we doubt the promises of God, may this doctrine strengthen our faith. But I'll close by saying if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus in the way that I'm talking about, if you're somehow depending upon your own righteousness and goodness, if you're somehow hoping in yourselves that you think God is going to look at your righteousness one day and say, yeah, you're good enough, you've somehow squeaked past the standard, I would remind you that the only standard of righteousness is God Himself. And if you're comparing yourselves to other men, you will fall short of the glory of God. You will not be declared righteous on the last day. But there is a righteousness that is reserved for you in Christ Jesus if you will believe God. If you will believe that the righteousness of God revealed from heaven is made full and made known and revealed to you in the person and work of Christ Jesus. If you look to Him by faith, there is salvation for you. There is righteousness for you. There is a right standing and acceptance before God for you. But it does not come by the works of your own hands. 
It comes by believing the good news that Christ died for your sins and was raised again according to the Scriptures, and you will be saved. Dear church, as we consider the life of Abram this morning, let this strengthen our faith. Abram doubted. His faith was fatigued and weak and frail. And when we get into those kinds of circumstances and we find ourselves, our faith tested, let us look to the promises of God and let us hear from His Word and let our faith be strengthened by Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that Your Word speaks so clearly to us this morning. It speaks so clearly to our fears and our worries and our anxieties and our doubts. Lord, it it speaks of your promises to us and your goodness to us. It speaks of your character. It speaks of your never leaving us nor forsaking us. It speaks of your nearness to us. Lord, may these truths strengthen our faith this morning. Father, we pray for the one who has not received salvation, who is unrighteous before you. Lord, we pray that you would grant them eyes to see and faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.